in past and present podcasts, a space dedicated to history, politics, art, culture, sociology, anthropology and many other subjects. This episode is part of Health and the Humanities in the Maghreb Lecture Series, organized by American Institute for Maghreb Studies Overseas Research Centers, the Centre d'études maghrébines en Algérie, CEMA, the Centre d'études maghrébines à Tunis, CEMAT, in collaboration with the Tangier American Legation, TANIM. It was recorded via Zoom on the 17th of September 2020 between Glasgow, Iran, Oxford, and Tunis. In this episode, we welcome Dr. Hannah Louise Clark, a lecturer in global economic and social history at the University of Glasgow, presenting a podcast entitled Of Gene Theory and Germ Theory Translating Bacteriological Medicine in Islamic Law in Algeria. James Magdugo, Professor of History at St. Anthony's College, University of Oxford, moderated the lecture and debate. On behalf of the American Institute for Maghreb Studies, Ames, I'm happy to welcome you today, old and new friends and colleagues, to our new Health and Humanities in the Maghreb Lecture Series, organized by Ames Overseas Research Centers, the Centre d'études Maghrebines en Algérie, CIMA, and the Centre d'études Maghrebines à Tunis, CIMAT, in close coordination with the Tangier American Legation Institute for Moroccan Studies, Tallinn. My name is Robert Parks, and I'm the director of CIMA, located in Oran, Algeria. We're very excited about this fantastic turnout for Hannah Louise Clark's inaugural lecture of Gin Theory and Germ Theory, Translating Bacteriological Medicine and Islamic Law in Algeria. We're all a bit oversaturated with health discussions in Zoom, and so we're very pleased to see that close to 140 people registered for today's lecture and that close to 100 people are with us now. The conditions within which we, are, uh, we currently live has made us think about our work in so many ways. With this series, we're looking to explore and also promote or expose thought, research, and ideas about something that touches us all. The aim of this series is to examine how different scholars, authors, and disciplines of the humanities explore issues of public health, sickness, and disease in the Maghreb in both the contemporary period, but also in the long durée, to give us a bit more perspective of illness in our times. The lectures will cover a variety of topics through the fall of 2020 and into the spring of 2021. I'm honored today to introduce our colleague uh, and friend, Hannah Louise Clark, historian of colonial science, whose talk will be introduced and moderated by James McDougall, historian of North Africa and French colonial empire, and incidentally, godfather to Lursa, my daughter, who you might hear in the background. Uh, without further ado, I will pass the mic over to James. James. Thanks, Bob, and thanks to the team at SEMA uh, and CMAT and everyone involved in this great series. It's going to be really exciting to listen to these lectures uh, and to catch them later on uh, on the podcast as well, hopefully. Um, so my name is James McDougall. I'm a professor of modern and contemporary history at the University of Oxford. Uh, and I'm delighted to be here to talk uh, about Hannah Louise's really interesting paper that we're going to hear in a moment. Hannah Louise Clark uh, did her PhD in the History of Science program at Princeton. She then taught at Oxford and is now a lecturer in global economic and social history at the University of Glasgow. Uh, she's a great friend and a great colleague. She's been doing really exciting uh, work. Uh, we've known each other, I think, for about... 10 years, which is a little scary, uh, but also really exciting to see how it works developing. And the paper this evening is called Of Gin Theories and Germ Theories, Translating Microbes, Bacteriological Medicine 
and Islamic law in Algeria. Anne Louise. Thank you. Well, hello everyone. It's like being at my own party. This is great. I was really, really delighted uh, to have the invitation from Bobby and from Larissa to be a part of the new Health and Humanities series. Uh, and I want to thank them and Miriam and Ola for their excellent organization of this event. Uh, and this is my first time giving a lecture on Zoom, so it's quite a, a big experience. If there's any, any issues, I hope you'll interrupt me and tell me. And I also want to thank you, by the way, if you're joining us at, at seven o'clock in the morning or nine o'clock in the morning, I really want to, to thank you for your attendance. It's, it's truly a pleasure to be able to share my research with you. So today I'm going to share with you a portion of my research on gin theories and germ theories, translating microbes, bacteriological medicine, and Islamic law in Algeria. And I'm going to start by giving some historical context and an overview of the project. I'm then going to discuss the genealogy of my interest in this topic and how my methodology has become a central aspect of my argument. Um, then I want to deal with some examples from the work, mostly about popularizations of germ theory in the interwar period. Uh, and in closing, I'll speak to some of the larger implications of the research for thinking about health and humanities in the Maghreb. Put a little. So uh, by the end of my talk, I hope to have convinced you that we can't think about the emerging culture of microbes and bacteriological medicine in the 20th century without also thinking about gin and Islamic law. So we're going to start with a health check. So what would you do if you had a headache or if you had a fever? I know what I'd do right now. I would start Googling symptoms of COVID-19 um, and I'd probably quite, be quite anxious and nervous and I would monitor my symptoms very carefully. Um, and if it was happening to me or a family member, um, I'd check my temperature and I might ask for advice from friends or family members. I would probably pray for safe recovery, but only if things started to deteriorate or the symptoms persisted would I actually seek medical attention or, or a test. So in 1907, the Islamic law professor, Abu Bakr Abdeslam bin Shaiba Tlemseni, asked this same question. Um, more precisely, he, he said, what should a Muslim do if they have a fever? And what should a Muslim do if they suffer from a migraine? And I don't think Ben Shaib was especially worried that these symptoms were signs of a very dangerous infection. True, in recent years, there had been a series of smallpox outbreaks across Algeria, and there'd been a very alarming outbreak of plague in 1906. But malarial fevers and headaches were part of everyday life. They were a commonplace affliction in early 20th century Tlemcen, which was where Bin Shaib taught law and theology at the Great Mosque and at the Madersa, which was the French colonial school for Islamic jurists. What worried Bin Shaib was the way that approaches to sickness and health were entangled with questions of religious orthodoxy. So Ben Shaib was an Islamic modernist. He was one among many late 19th and early 20th century reformers across the Islamic world who sought to adapt to the conditions of modern existence by returning to what they saw as a pure Islam, which for Ben Shaib and others was found in texts and in the actions of the first generations of Muslims, the Salaf. 
And Ben Jaib championed Islam as the religion of scientific progress in public lectures, in publications aimed at both Muslim and French audiences in Tlemcen. And it was in an article for the history journal Revue Africaine that he asked about headaches and fevers. And he said, one can imagine that for the young generations who've received instruction, scientific medicine will soon replace empirical medicine and talismans for treatment of headaches, fevers, and other common complaints. Now, he never defines what he means by scientific medicine, but he almost certainly meant the form of medicine legally recognized by the French colonial state in Algeria that was taught at the Algiers School of Medicine. Um, he might have been aware of pathological anatomy or antiseptic surgery or pastoral hygiene, we don't know. What he is clear about is that without this education, he worried, Muslim sufferers would continue to frame their ailments in terms of possession by spirits, by jinn, born of fire, uh, mentioned in the Quran, referred to colloquially as Janun, and they would persist in turning to diviners or exorcists, talaba, such as um, Masood bin Fadl here, and, and they would maintain trust in protective amulets, haruz, and undertake ritualized visits to the shrines of saintly marabit, um, much like Catholics who sought miracles at Lourdes, he noted. And this is the tomb of Sidi al-Kisi, you'll go, go there to deal with the fevers I talked about. So most of Ben Shaib's contemporaries, however observant or not they might be, ascribed illness and accidents to God's will and invisible forces. And after all, jinn are canonical in Islam. And Algerian Muslims sought spiritual as well as physical remediation for illnesses. And I might add that Algerian Jews and European settlers were no different. And in fact, they shared some overlapping beliefs and practices. But according to Ben Shaib, People who believed in the healing powers of saints were not Orthodox Muslims, and their faith in this type of moral medicine marked them as apostates. So I've undertaken a, a study of how Algerians reworked jinn theories in the wake of the violence that followed the French conquest and how they continued to rethink belief in jinn in the face of new social and technological realities. Was it lawful to consume medicines prepared by non-Muslims or to seek treatment from them? And what about the legality of novel techniques such as quarantine and vaccination that became a formal legal requirement following the passage of an administrative decree in 1908? So as I document, the problem of how to stay healthy and be a good Muslim in a rapidly changing and hostile world was a wide general concern in the early 20th century. And in addition to specialists of Islamic law, such as Bin Shaib, I look at other mostly Muslim intellectuals, all of the men, um, including Algerian medical auxiliaries, pharmacists, journalists, but also unlettered villagers and colonial officials. And looking at how different individuals and groups assimilated germ theories allows me to get at three interrelated issues. Um, so first, the changing dynamics of health, healing, and power, and the continuing relevance of metaphysical ideas of health alongside secular and materialistic approaches. Second, the resourcefulness of Algerians in reconciling Islamic law 
which they saw as fluid and negotiated with French colonial edicts and new ideas and technologies. And third, the complex role of scientific medicine and colonialism in reordering and reinforcing patriarchy as different nationalist and colonial elites mobilized Islamic law to promote germ-based hygiene and in the process dismissed women's gin-based health practices. And so this research uses a wide range of sources in Arabic, English and French to capture different ways in which germ theories were transmitted and taken up. And these include treatise of Ijtihad, questions and answers prepared by a mufti, popular petitions, newspaper articles, advertisements, posters, and just to give a bit of historiographical context, so Pierre Noir, uh, hagiographers write as if bacteriological medicine were the exclusive achievement of French men of science. But this view has long come under challenge by historians um, such as Anne-Marie Moulin, John Strawn, um, Mathieu Fintz, for having close ties to the racial ideologies of the so-called civilizing mission and of settler colonialism. And this work is very important, but it does focus on French and, and settler scientists and actors. And there's been no reception history of germ theories by local Algerian society or in local languages until now. And all too often in my own work as well, the history of colonial medicine and its agents and its institutions and policies and their underpinning legal frameworks has been mistaken for the whole history of bacteriological medicine in Algeria. And because of the focus on European interpretations and applications of germ theories, it has been harder to see the kinds of continuities of thought and practice that historians for other world regions have identified. And I'll just give one example here, um, which is Nancy Toms's work. Toms has done a lot of work on reception of, of germs, germ theories. And in this book, The Gospel of Germs, Toms talks about continuities in how progressive era North Americans responded to threats to health. And she emphasizes the daily work of women to keep their families healthy, to keep their houses clean, rather than the work of men in, in public health laboratories. Barnes and Rogaski are among some of the other, other scholars who find enduring continuities rather than ruptures or, or a germ revolution. So in the limited time that we have, I'm, I'm going to examine a few snapshots from my research that reveal some of these continuities across gene theories and germ theories and that illuminate health as more than simply a French colonial concern. And the examples I, I'm going to talk about mainly appear in newspapers and publications immediately following the First World War. Um, in the broader project, I talk about the ethics of using French medicine, and I won't be talking about that here, um, but it's something that we could potentially discuss in the, the Q&A. So I said I'd talk a little bit about the genealogy of this project before I dive into the research. And here's some pictures of a much younger Hannah Louise um, looking very gleeful in some Algerian archives. Um, every time I show this picture at the bottom to an archivist, they, they shriek because I've got felt tip pens um, which should never be allowed in archives. Um, so my, my previous research in Algeria and France has focused on the archives of colonial bureaucracy, particularly those produced at the levels of the commune mixte, where most Algerians lived. 
And I was extremely fortunate to receive um, a lot of other people's money to do this research um, from Princeton and the US Department of Education Doctoral Dissertation Research Abroad Fellowship. And I received lots and lots of other forms of privilege and support that made this research possible. Some of them listed here. Um, and that also included a very understanding spouse and a lack of caring responsibilities and, and straightforward visa and, and immigration situation. And in my earlier research, I used these archives to amplify in particular the historical experiences of Muslim medical auxiliaries uh, who were linchpins of the colonial bureaucracy of healthcare and who are the main subject of my, my book manuscript. Um, and medical auxiliaries were 100% bin Shaib's young generation instructed in, in scientific medicine. They were a very tiny number of teenagers who'd graduated from French schools with a certificat d'études primaires, uh, which was a rare distinction. They, they uh, had taken an exam in Arabic and French, and they were admitted to a two-year or three-year with internship course of study at the Algiers School of Medicine, and their curriculum was designed by one of the co-founders of the Pasteur Institute of Algiers, Henri Soulier, who also took responsibility for teaching them. So they're, they're really like this young generation educated in scientific medicine par excellence. If any Algerians could be said to be deeply educated in bacteriological medicine, it was them. And I recall when I came across a record of a, a dialogue between the Algerian Jewish student, Chaim Abel Levi Bram, who interviewed these young men in 1907, the very same year that Ben Shaib is, is talking about scientific medicine. And he reported that they said, one of these pupils, to prove that he grasps well the role of microbes, told us that he would compare these invisible beings when he spoke of them to his co-religionists, to jinn, considered by natives to be the cause of illness. And Levi Bram's dissertation identifies these students as some of the first, if not the first, North African Muslims to make this jinn-germ connection um, and to seek to popularize Pasteurian germ theory in this fashion. And On Barak's uh, book, On Time, uh, tells us that Sayyid Qutb makes the same move, describing neonatal tetanus as a type of jinn called the Qarina, but this wasn't until 1910, so the Algerian medical auxiliaries possibly got there first. And I was always fascinated by this, this little story, but I wasn't really sure how to take it further. Uh, and over time, my personal circumstances changed. This is a gen genealogy, really, of, of my interest in the project. So I had two children, and I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And caring for my children and establishing new health routines made me reevaluate a lot of things in my life, including my research because so much managing health and symptoms of illness happens at home without ever involving doctors. And I've been aware of this theoretically. So medical anthropologists talk about uh, lay therapy management and medical sociologists speak about the symptom iceberg. And what they mean is just like only one-tenth of the iceberg is visible, only about a tenth of illnesses ever actually make it to the doctor's office. 
And if you look at this, this little visualization, you can think about the visible part of the iceberg as being the history of medicine and the history of healthcare, whereas everything hidden beneath the waterline is the history of health and the history of care. Now, it's one thing to know this theoretically, but it's quite another thing to live it. And it wasn't until I was living this that it really made sense to me. And I think this is perhaps something we're all confronting, um, we're all more aware of because of the, the COVID-19 pandemic right now. And I should add that I'm very invested in scientific medicine and in the wonderful Scottish National Health Service because I depend on, depend on it. I depend on injecting insulin uh, to stay alive. So I would definitely wear both of these t-shirts, uh, for instance. But let's not kid ourselves. Scientific medicine doesn't guarantee a life free of pain and complications. It can't promise you a good life. Um, in the 21st century, we know the science of COVID-19 is uncertain. We know that scientific medicine is relatively weak in many areas, including mental health, including spinal injuries, just to name a couple. So how much more so was this the case at the beginning of the 20th century when laboratory science was contested and uncertain, uh, when apart from smallpox and diphtheria vaccinations, scientific medicine has, has no effective interventions in its arsenal. And when French medicine, to bring it back to the Algerian context, French medicine was hardly available at all to Algerians. So Bin Shaib's enthusiasm for scientific medicine was really quite out of proportion to what it was capable of delivering. So all these life experiences are why I became more and more interested in the hidden part of the iceberg, that is the history of health and care as something that really matters. And um, with support from the Leverhulme Trust, I, I started to make use of archival resources that were available to me on, online and in the UK because I couldn't travel. Um, and these sources included a remarkable book of, of Elm al um compiled by the 18th century Talib Sayyid Said Abdel Naim, who claimed to have seen jinn with his own eyes. Um, I'm not going to go into this in detail, but I'd be happy to talk about it a little bit more in Q&A. And also, because I was living in Oxford at the time, and every weekend I used to take small children to the Pitt Rivers Museum, also known as the Dark Museum to my children, because it has very low lighting. Um, and I discovered that, that they have quite a substantial collection of, of surgical tools and research notes that were collected by Melville and Helen Dorothy Hilton Simpson from Sharia Berber peoples, Berber peoples in the Oras mountain region of Eastern Algeria, shortly before and after the outbreak of the First World War. Um, and in fact, the Pitts Rivers Museum, it has about 689 objects collected by them. Uh, and they were gathered in the area between Batna and Biskra. And, their, their objects are more than a quarter of the entire Algeria collection in the Pitt Rivers. And the Hilton Simpsons field notes are divided between the Pitt Rivers in Oxford and the Royal Anthropological Institute in London. And it was some notes from London that became key to how I'm thinking about gin theories. 
So the Hilton Simpsons uh, interviewed Sherry Peoples in the Oras, as I said, uh, and I'm going to say that Dorothy Hilton Simpson was as much an ethnographer as her husband, even though she didn't get a PhD and was never um, was never listed on any publications because she did a lot of the information gathering as well. And it was in one of their notes um, where they talked to an informant who attributes minor illnesses to Arab jinn. And the Hilton Simpsons report that Arab jinn did, quote, little serious harm, just like the old time forays of Arab raiders. Um, so the Arab raiders had used a similar kind of military technology to the Shawiya. And they sought to take tribute rather than to kill excessively. So Arab jinn were similarly annoying, but they weren't life-threatening. So what about more serious diseases? Well, their informants told them that epidemics such as cholera, typhus, and smallpox were caused by armies of Janoon, known as Wachs, who invade a village and strike down the inhabitants. As proof of which theory, um, the Hilton Simpsons were told that the victims in their delirium raved and shouted as if they were in battle. And the Hilton Simpsons go on to say, the armies of Janoon, which caused the serious epidemics mentioned above, are called French because the harm they do is considerable. The reasons for this doubtless being that at the time of various insurrection, the French have been obliged note the use of language there, um, the French have been obliged to send punitive expeditions into the Aures and certain villages in the Hasira Valley have been made aware of the effect of artillery. So this account um, might have been collected before or immediately after the First World War, I don't know. But according to these informants, Janoon produced physical illness and mental confusion in those that they possessed. But the presence of Jin also diagnosed unequal power relations that threaten public order and collective well-being. Jin theories were filtered through social experiences of, of new people and of new technologies. And Shari theories about Jin were medical and political theories simultaneously. And for me, reading this document was what you might call a stubbing my toe kind of moment for me for two reasons. One, because this was the first written evidence I had seen that the experience of colonialism and its, and its structural inequalities didn't just make people sick. The experience of the violence of French conquest was so brutal that it actually led people to collectively reimagined the experience of being ill. So that was the first thing that, that struck me. And the second thing that struck me was that I had encountered villagers from the Gisera Valley before, and I'd read about their health problems um, in a letter in the archives. Um, in fact, uh, in my article expressing entitlement in colonial Algeria, I opened the article with a letter that villagers in Dua Gisera um, were responsible for the writing of. Um, they were frightened by a great disease and they petitioned a local representative of French authority 
for a doctor to come to the sick during a serious epidemic in 1917 that colonial officials thought was typhus. And so in the article, I argue that following the introduction of punitive sanitary laws, European, Jewish and Muslim villages in the commune mixed start to try to assert claims um, to doctors from the colonial state and villages across religious confessional boundaries sometimes acted together to ask for a doctor because it was pretty much the only thing they could ask the state for with any reasonable chance of success. So reading the account of Wachs, these French genoon that caused serious illness, led me to see new dimensions to the villagers' request. I started to wonder what if they believed that armies of French jinn were responsible for the great sickness in their, in their village? And what if they summoned the French doctor because he was probably more likely to understand French jinn and he was probably more likely to know how to get rid of them. So having previously not really seen this in an entirely secular light, once I had this stub your toe moment, I started to, to see gin in this letter, I started to see gin almost everywhere in my sources. And I started to test and develop my ideas um, from these sources, learning from outstanding work. And here's just some examples, some work on gin by scholars such as Amir Al-Zain, Amal Hassan Fadlullah, Ellen Amster, Ali Reza Dustar, and Ali Olomi. And I was also taking in some very uh, exciting work by historians of science and Islam, including Marwa Shakri, Khaled Fahmi, Leor Halvi, and Daniel Stoltz, among others. And unlike many of these scholars, I'm not an historian of Islam. I'm not an Islamic studies scholar by training. Um, so what is really helpful for me in the arguments that they're making is how they show um, Islamic tradition as a very plural and complex tradition comprising different disciplines and different genres of practice. And they, they document how different individuals, different people of faith and different groups are using positive science, positivist science and European technologies as resources or as strategies. So I was um, reading this and encouraged by uh, a mentor, Helen Tilly, to think seriously about the role of Islamic law and um, legal pluralism in my own research. So most of the sources I'm going to tell you about um, very shortly present germ theories in relation to different interpretations of Islamic law. And almost none of them mention jinn. But leaning on the Ghesira Valley precedent, I realized that when people wrote or talked about germs, they almost always, indirectly at least, are talking about jinn. And the reason I think this is because most of the texts I'm going to talk to you about and most of the texts I found have to do with keeping the home clean and with important areas of social reproduction such as breastfeeding, weaning and the proper care of infants and, and children. And these were all things that I'd been busy with myself as a parent. And I knew that these are all areas in which women and grandmothers 
and birth attendants and lactation consultants are specialists. They have knowledge, they have experience, they have power in this area. And that's no different in early 20th century Algeria, except we're talking about qablat, uh, birth attendants, rather than lactation consultants and midwives. And women's bodies were, were said to be particularly vulnerable to attack by jinn during pregnancy and birthing and breastfeeding, as are young children's growing bodies. And so women developed a whole host of, um, and used a whole host of jinn repellents to keep themselves and their children safe, such as wearing amulets during pregnancy. This is a Jewish um, necklace for pregnant women. So, suspending talisman made of iron above an infant's cradle or around a child's wrist or limb. Employing written charms, upon some of which might be inscribed the name of the wearer's mother. Um, and iron and red are particularly good gin repellents. I'm wearing my own gin repellent right here, right now. So as I delved more and more into translations of germ theory and popularizations of germ theory in Arabic, I realized I had a more complex and interesting story than I'd first imagined um, that went beyond the reception history of germ theory. Because I was witnessing not only Muslim elites, but also colonial elites competing with women to manage health in the home. And they did this by making appeals to germs and to Islamic law. So, all that said, I'm now going to dive into the historical snapshots of germs and the occasional gin in newspapers and publications. Most of these uh, date from the, the 1920s. So these aren't the first time that people are talking about, writing about germ theories in Arabic, sorry about that. So the first publication to describe a version of germ theory in Arabic appeared in 1908. That's Kitab al-Khair al-Muntashir fi al-Bashar, the book of spreading goodness in the preservation of human health. That was co-authored by the military doctor Charles Derkle, um, the Mufti Abul Qasim al-Hafnawi, and colonial administrator Jean Mirant. Um, I'd be happy to talk about this more in the Q&A. Essentially, the book insists that Hygiene is a matter of personal responsibility. And while germ theory might be French in origin, it is entirely and fully anticipated in Quranic revelation. And another, this is sort of the main um, mass vector for transmission of germ theories, is not the newspapers, it's actually the, the mass movement of Algerian men during the First World War. Some 300,000 um, Algerians in the service of France during the Great War, either as, as workers or 175,000 of them in, in uniform. And soldiers underwent medical examinations and vaccinations on their departure from Algerian ports. Uh, they were shown magic lantern shows uh, about disease. They were handed pamphlets on syphilis that were euphemistically titled um, the treatment and preservation from diseases that were translated into Arabic by someone called Al-Sfexi, so presumably a Tunisian. Um, and I think it's worth emphasizizing here that Al-Tib of Al-Afrangi, 
Frankish medicine or French medicine is very much associated with El Mord de la Frangie, the French disease, uh, also known as syphilis. And it can be no coincidence that these returning soldiers and workers, um, when they came back to Algeria, encountered a wide range of germ-related information in Arabic language newspapers alongside advertisements for toothpaste and cosmetic products, constipation remedies, virility pills, syphilis treatments, and, and, and other um, such desirable things. So the example I want to give um, now comes from Algeria's most widely read Arabic newspaper, Najah. Um, and in the article length project I've developed, I go into a range of newspapers. I'll just talk about Najah here. Um, which engaged a wide range of health topics in the 1920s. So readers were introduced to infectious diseases, how to protect against them, public health, the necessity of cleanliness of hotels, health statistics, um, an expose of the civil hospital in Constantine. They were also treated to two poems, Disease and the Microbe, El Mard and El Microbe, that were written in a mixture of classical Arabic and dialect. Uh, and these were published under the Islamically resonant nom de plume of El Rashid. And I've been meaning to ask Arthur Asaraf if he knows the identity of El Rashid. I'll just talk about one of these poems, El Microbe. Um, so El Rashid criticized gin exorcism and moral medicine as unlawful women's nonsense. And the poem describes a gathering uh, of people who are quarreling uh, heatedly, presumably about microbes. And the poem begins, um, So while along the path, I went walking, the world's goings on attentively following, all of a sudden there was a large gathering and I was summoned to sit down with them. And the poet goes on um, describing how a quarrel among them almost turns into a brawl. And he, the poet tries to, to calm down um, the, the assembled discussants with some, some useful words, he says. And one man discusses his purchase of a fat chicken that he plans to slaughter in sacrifice uh, to the janoon that we always see near the cooking, the portable cooking fire, the kernoon. Um, the Arabic is really hard to translate here, but I've got, what I've got is, so this yellow chicken that he bought to sacrifice and is fat and he bought it for a heavy price, uh, for expensive price, is only fit for the, the janoon that we always see sitting near the hearth. And the use of language by the poet um, is sometimes obscure to me, but it's very interesting because he talks about this person, the, the person who, um, the man who is planning to sacrifice this chicken. 
He says that this man was So he was like the woman displaying effeminate manners. And the poem ends um, with the poet dismissing all those, or the narrator dismissing all those who are gathered, um, calling on, on God to fight their thoughts, their, their superstitious, rejected superstitious thoughts. That's the most Arabic I've spoken out loud for a long time. Bill, be, be kind to me in the, in the Q&A there. So, as you know, as we know from, from James's work, among um, other scholars' work, the interwar period was a time of increasing rivalry among nationalist leaders and their respective organizations to represent the Algerian nation. And so we might wonder if, if some of those tensions and debates, um, whether they, they work their way into pronouncements on microbes and on bacteriological medicine. And in fact, we, we do see that different political projects are espousing bacteriological medicine for various reasons. So on the one hand, we've got Islamic modernists who we encountered in the person of Ben Shaib, myriad newspapers that denounced the political uh, influence of Murabit, such as Al-Ummah, such as Al-Shahab, Al-Haq, and Al-Furqan contributed to marginalizing jinn theories indirectly by endorsing French credentialed pharmacists and doctors. Um, and here I want to give just one example. This is from Al-Ummah. This is a great advertisement from the pharmacy of Abdurrahman Bukhidina, uh, who shared a political platform with Sheikh Ben Badis and was also a very, very um, popular pharmacist. And here he's got, this is for one of his proprietary medicines. So while Bin Badis urged the moral and social renewal of Muslims, Bukhidina's proprietary medicines, as advertised in Al Ummah, promised to revive the Muslim uh, national spirit and nafs, um, and to do so using the methods of modern medicinal preparations, Turak al Istihdarat al Asriya. And this quarter page advertisement for Al Kotin, Kuatin, Kotin, I'm not entirely sure the pronunciation, assured potential purchasers that it contained nothing that is forbidden in Islamic law. If any of you have ever heard of Kutin before, please, please tell me about it. I think it might have been um, a mixture of kaolin and morphine, in which case it aimed to revive the national spirit by causing uh, oblivion and purging of the bowels. And I'll, I should add that around this time, and not only in Algeria, some of the most popular and sought after remedies that can really make a pharmacist's reputation, actually, are constipation remedies. So it wasn't just Bukhadina who was, who was in on this. Alarmingly, patent medicine companies also dressed their advertisements in Islamic garb to lure customers and give the impression that their products were Islamically sound, when in fact they were not religious at all. Um, like these Valda menthol pills, 
which were made by factory workers in Lille, not by a turban sheikh. And on the other hand, um, so if that's the Islamic modernists, we also have young Algerians, so nominally secular men, attached to their traditions though. So here's a taqaddam edited by medical auxiliary instructor, doctor, politician Belkasim Bentemi, uh, which appeared somewhat in intermittently in the 1920s. And uh, Al-Taqadum advocated for political assimilation. He discussed social issues such as women's status, schooling for girls, and for a time featured a health advice column on the front page, hygiene or the preservation of health for the Muslim masses of North Africa from the Pasteur Institute. And intriguingly, rather than leaning on his own clinical and teaching experience, which for which he had decades, um, Bentami lifted the text of this column verbatim from a colonial hygiene manual of the same name. And that is Kitab Seha. So um, this is a handbook in the literal sense of like, a small book that fits in your hand. And a copy was given to every indigenous official in Algeria. And it represents a very authoritarian approach to public health education. Its authors were um, Louis Perrault and Edmund Sergent, whose, whose pictures you saw on an earlier slide. And they took a very instrumental approach to Islam and Islamic law. So they sprinkled their texts with quotations from the Quran. They mentioned the existence of unseen spirits in relation to infectious disease. They use excerpts from the Fatiha. They, they, they use language of Sahih and Fasid to try and compel obedience to state sanitary laws. And in chapters addressed to husbands and fathers and chiefs, Paro and Sergeant's work urged the increasing dominance of male villagers over their women folk, of indigenous officials over the villagers and of the colonial state over these officials and it, it, it ends with a, a kind of a threat against officials that they should report they should be alert aides in the service of public health and it's telling that Benito Mussolini admires this book so much that he has it translated into Italian for distribution in Libya. So when Bentami repurposes extracts from this book in his newspaper this had the effect of subtly repositioning them so that a project for achieving top-down colonial state control became a project of self-uplift within the family unit. And it's telling to me that one of the first topics Bentami covers in his column was breastfeeding, a choice which highlights the complex role of colonialism in, in reinforcing patriarchy in Algerian society. Um, so gone was women's careful management of the dangers, the health risks of gin at, during breastfeeding. Um, with, with protective amulets. Instead, male readers were told to instruct and supervise new mothers to give the breast on a strict scientific schedule, so not until 12 hours after the birth, and then every two to three hours from the second day only. Um, and I should add that I, I first translated these passages of advice when I was breastfeeding my own very small child and the guidance is really completely ridiculous um, and unachievable in the 21st century, let alone for early 20th century rural women or urban women indeed, living under colonial oppression without piped water, without electricity and adequate nutrition.
So unfortunately, Ben Tami and the authors of um, Kitab Hafaz al-Siha pay little heed to what memorizers of the, the Quran would have known much better than they. So in the advice on breastfeeding, um, an injunction from Surah Al-Baqarah is, is used, stipulating that the mother should be allowed to breastfeed the child for two full years, um, even following divorce, when the father would normally take custody of the child. So, so far, so good. Um, this is mobilized to support the statement that a mother should breastfeed the child herself and not use a wet nurse. Um, and in Third Republic France, wet nurses were seen as a very dangerous vector for disease. The hygiene advice given was actually in diametric opposition to divine revelation, since the same Quranic verse continues to say you commit no error by hiring nursing mothers as long as you pay them fairly. So Parot, Sargent and Bentami have the intention of promoting pastorian medicine and scientific breastfeeding by using um, Islamic language to make the advice and, and presumably those who bestowed it appear trustworthy. And medical auxiliaries who studied under Benthami and took this information into the field with them. So these ideas enjoyed wide circulation. So in the wider project, um, I look at many more examples and I, I conclude that public health popularizations, particularly in the interwar period, encouraged Algerian people of all classes to reconsider but never give up their belief in jinn. So in, in writings by Islamic reformers, there's an attempt to displace jinn and there's outright condemnation of murabit and of women's uh, superstitions. Uh, but military, medical auxiliaries and French officials also attacked murabit, but they and others found it pedagogically useful to use jinn ideas to promote germ theories, especially among unlettered rural populations. And so in doing so, they took a diagnostic concept that had previously encompassed social and political healing, as we saw in the, the Shawi theory of jinn, stripped it of power relations and morality and focused it more narrowly on personal hygiene, personal responsibility and public health and hygiene. In closing, I would like to just discuss briefly one of the ways that using gin theory as a subject and as a method opens critical perspectives for health and, and humanities in, in the Maghreb. And we can talk about more in our discussion as well. Um, because I believe deeply that our work as historians must speak to larger audiences. I want to say a word about how this project could help teach medical students. Algeria's medical schools took the really tremendous and important step in 2018 of introducing a compulsory humanities module, Santé, Société, Humanité, which is aimed at producing a profession willing and able to treat patients holistically. And each university has developed its own program. Uh, many of their learning materials are available online and they're very informative of a high quality. And I'm extremely proud, I should say, of the fact that my research on medical auxiliaries and smallpox vaccination has been useful um, to some of the designers of this curriculum and it's fed into to some of their learning materials. And I just want to draw your attention to the program for the Université d'Alger. So you can see that it has a lot of historical content. And this history really emphasizes the role of medical professionals. 
And in all the slides that I looked at, there's one mention of midwives and another of tabibs, but mostly the focus is on uh, first European doctors and then their Algerian successors. And this history is very important, certainly, for building a sense of professional identity. But there are complementary stories that could also help doctors in their work and in their interactions with patients, such as the importance of domestic medicine and women's care work historically and up to the present. And it, and it did surprise me that the curriculum doesn't actually talk about gin. And yet we know from the work of medical anthropologists like Mohammed Mabtoul and others that religious cosmologies of illness are still very important to many people um, and have to be considered in clinical settings. So today Algerian women enroll in medical studies in far greater number than Algerian men. And because of the COVID-19 pandemic, religious explanations for disease are at the forefront of many people's minds, not only in Algeria. So I think there's no better time to refine our understanding of health and medicine in Algeria's past to make it more capacious, to include women's experience and care that happens within the family and in the home, and to think about the public health benefits of germ theories that are also gin theories. So I began with questions uh, posed by a worried Abu Bakr Abdeslam bin Shaib, and it's only fitting that I give him the last words. So towards the end of his life in 1937, bin Shaib expressed disappointment in the young generations whose minds he had spent several decades trying to mold. And he condemned their failure to embrace germ theories of disease. He wrote, however educated they may be, the Muslims of Algeria attribute considerable influence to the mysterious. They always believe that they are subject to attack by invisible and dangerous beings, the elusive jinn. So I wish to add only that being able to present this research to you has been an honor, and I very much look forward to our discussion. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Hannah Louise, but I'm gonna hand over back to Bob. Thanks, uh, Hannah Louise. Thanks, James. This, this was uh, great. It was an excellent lecture uh, and it was a really rich uh, discussion. Uh, and I want to thank everyone who's still with us. I see that we have 27 of our original 60 people out of the 130 who were 140 who, who signed up who are still there. So thank you for, uh, for sharing your time with us. This was a great first inaugural lecture. It really, really, I can't sort of express how happy we are and, and thank, uh, want to thank everyone for for being here and participating in it. So uh, thank you once again, Hannah Louise. It was a, it was a really great lecture and, and James uh, for, for taking your time. And Thanks so much everyone and for your wonderful questions. Uh, this is, I feel very lucky to have had this opportunity to speak with you all, thank you. Oh, well, I don't want to say goodbye to you all, but thank you and, and farewell. And I hope we all meet again in happier times. Stay well, everyone. Thank you for listening to Macrobin Past and Present Podcasts. To see related slides, please visit our website www.themagrobpodcast.com. Other episodes are also available on iTunes and Podbean. For more information on our podcasts, visit our Facebook page, Magribin Past and Present Podcasts. Subscribe to SEMA newsletter at www.sema.com. 
www.northafrica.org to CMAT newsletter at www.cmatmagreb.org and to Talim newsletter at legation.org or visit the webpage of the American Institute for Maghreb Studies. See you soon for a new episode. Thank you.